joined together with God's people in God's house. It was a glorious day last week. And by the way, I just uh, want to encourage us to always remember to call Sunday the Lord's Day. That is the scriptural language. And, you know, more and more people call it the weekend, but we ought to remember Sunday is the Lord's Day. And so when the Lord's people get together on the Lord's Day in the house of God, my goodness, there could not be anything more wonderful, biblical, and full of the blessings of God. Now, last Sunday on Father's Day, we had a little bit of break from our series on who is God, the attributes of God, and we talked about a seven key principles that we should teach our sons and our daughters too, of course. And so uh, we uh, went through those and we got through a, a good number of them. And then uh, we just ran out of time. And so uh, I felt like the topic was too important not to be able to finish a little more fully. And so uh, we're gonna do something a little bit different. We're gonna finish last week's message and then we're gonna go right into this week's message. And so uh, I hope that you'll uh, stay tuned here. And uh, it's kind of different because the first part of the message is very practical. And then uh, the last part is very theological. And yet both are powerful and spiritual. All right. Last week, uh, well, let's pray. Father, bless us today. God, uh, help us to get our minds uh, wrapped around this. And more importantly, our heart and our spirit Oh, God, unite us on this very important topic. In Jesus' name, amen. Seven principles for Proverbs. For our sons and for our daughters. What is a proverb? A proverb is a principle. But it's a principle that is wise in content and concise in form. Brief enough to be remembered and wise enough to be effective. Proverbs are the original sound bites, as they call them today. It is a principle that is a foundation for all the blessings in life. We talked about seven of these. We gave you the first five, kind of gave you the last two real quickly. The first one, we ought to teach our family to fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's where it all begins. Three keys, worshiping faithfully, in attendance in the Lord's house on the Lord's day. That's a non-optional principle. Paul said it very clear, 1 Timothy 4.13, till I come, give attendance or be in attendance. Be in attendance. And we are so grateful for our folks, our family that are online. And I know some of you have medical situations where it's just impossible for you to come. And we understand that I just want to encourage the rest of you, be in attendance. That's the best way to do it, in reading and exhortation and doctrine. When we are in attendance, we leave a legacy for our family, not um, baseball and beer, but the Bible and blessings. We let them know we really uh, think that going to church and serving God is very important. You want your children to remember this snapshot. My dad, my mom, in church, we were there. That's the kind of thing we want. 
reading consistently. The greatest book of all, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. The word of God, praying constantly. And so those three things, worshiping faithfully, reading consistently the word of God, and praying constantly by myself, for my children, and with my children. Do you play with your children? They might be three, or they might be 13, or they might be 30, but pray with your children. That's why God said in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord, build trust. Let's just trust the Lord today, children. Let's pray about this matter. Let's pray about this homework. Let's pray about this uh, game you're going to. All right, number two, guard his heart. Now, friends, there are certain things in life we can forget, but there are other things God said you, got, you have to absolutely inscribe it on your heart. These are things you can't forget. Proverbs 3, verse 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. If you do, it'll be catastrophic. Chisel it, he said. Write it, engrave it into your heart. Mercy, faithful love. For who? For Jesus. Truth. Mercy, faithful love for Jesus, and truth. A hundred percent belief in the Bible. Have that family, help those children hold that Bible in their hand and say this. This is God's word. Every word is true. Have them say that over and over again. We want them to know that Jesus, faithful love to Jesus, and holding that Bible. Number three, the third thing we're teaching is to honor our parents. Instill it into our sons and daughters. They must obey. Their very life depends on it. Immediately, exactly, happily, completely. And thankfully, we have not only the command to do it, but we have the wonderful means to do it. 22 and verse 15 of Proverbs, foolishness, sadly, is bound in the heart of a child. Not just found in some children, it is bound in every child. Maybe some more active than others, but it is the rod of correction. What a wonderful promise, the rod of correction. You're not beating them with a big old a bat or something. That's not what it means. It means loving strictness coupled with just repercussions, faithfully carried out, bring a wonderful promise, it will drive it far from them, far. And that's what we're trying to do. Our responsibility is to take this little heathen and turn him into something that is spiritual. That's our plan. Number five, we must perceive, teach them to perceive their associates. Proverbs chapter one and verse 10, my son, my son, my precious son who I love so dearly, my daughter, if sinners entice thee, isn't that rotten? I mean, it's, it's one thing for someone to sin. It's another for someone to entice others. And I'm telling you what, we have a world of perpetrators. They use the media, you name it, they are perpetrators. They are enticing. But nobody can say that they made me do it. Consent thou not. We must teach them to just say no. And then five, we said, regulate their passions. Our sons and daughters have been given God-given passions for sex. That is by God. Now that passion can lead to either tragedy or triumph. That's why you regulate it. When you're unmarried, you turn that regulator down. And the biggest threat to our sons and daughters are these smart tools. 
the, uh, these smartphones, excuse me, it is a wonderful tool or it can be a weapon of mass destruction. We've got to find a way to monitor these smartphones. And then after marriage, you regulate it by turning that dial up because the marriage bed is God's wedding gift to newlyweds. And so that's why we teach them to regulate their passions. All right, now, that was the first five. Let's now go to the last two. And these last two are super practical. Now, as I'm going through these, especially the seventh one, you're going to say, this doesn't seem very theological for a church service, but I will tell you, both have huge spiritual implications. I've told so many people over the years uh, that uh, many of the men that I went to Bible college with are not in the ministry, sadly. And I don't, I'm not rejoicing in that. I'm, I'm grieved about that. But I will tell you, for the most part, it was not because of their doctrine or because of their desire. It was because of their finances and their inability to manage their life. And I will tell you that we need to be people who learn to manage ourselves. How do you do that? Well, number six, pursue his or her God-given work. Whatever God-glorifying work, whatever God-glorifying work, let's train them to be diligent workers. We train them by helping them learn to clean their room when they're early, do the lawns, wash the dishes, do whatever you have to do. To be a conscientious, thorough, persistent, dedicated, committed employee or business owner. God says, just be like ants. Not uncles, but ants. Verse, chapter six and verse number six. Proverbs six and verse six, that was a joke. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no guide, overseer, or ruler, does two things, provides her meat in the summer, gathers her food in the harvest. Now in the Bible, a lazy person is called a sluggard or a slothful person. Both of them don't sound very good to me. Sloth, I've seen those sloths up in the, some of those zoos there, they're creepy looking things, but they just kind of hang there, never moving. A sluggard and a sloth. Now there's two characteristics according to verse number four uh, that a diligent person does. They prepare, they provide. We must be diligent about getting our resources. Diligent about our getting. Now the employment world has radically changed over the last 25 years. The drop in birth rates, the mass of baby boomers retiring has made huge amounts of good opportunities abound for people. But we must be aware when we teach our sons and daughters about the job that they get into to make it a career. And there must be some pragmatism to this. That is, you may have heard the statement, if you love your job, you'll never work a day in your life. And so some people grab that little bromide there not a biblical one especially, but not especially wrong either. It can be right at times. But they take that thought and they say, well, if it's something I love, then I'm gonna go off to college. They get a $35,000 student loan 
and they study what they love, they're going to be an artist. <laughs> but I will tell you, there's not a lot of demand for Picassos out in this world. And so, while yes, we need to find something that uh, we enjoy, the real answer is to find God's calling for our life, not what we enjoy. People I meet all over the place, you know, they try to figure out, they retire, where are we going to move? What, what place do we like? Well, kind of a crazy hoot nanny way of choosing what we're going to do is that. What area do I like? Come on, we got to have a higher goal than that. How about where does God want me to best serve him? That's where I need to be. I'll tell you one thing, you can turn a, uh, any place into a, a wonderful place by doing God's will. Think big picture. If you love children, and teach your sons and daughters to love children. And if you're medically able to allow the creator to plan your family size, then it is likely that mom will be managing a wonderful, vibrant home with lots of wonderful children. Pretty much then, that means that the father is going to have to have a career type job. Now, and if you want to be a Picasso on the side, artistry, that's good, but do it on the side. Anymore, we need to realize that there are so many wonderful careers out there. And there are professional that require four years of college and some that require six years and, of course, others that even more than that. But there are many very rewarding jobs that you can work with your hands that don't require any of that and that are high-paying and very uh, good and rewarding and so uh, teach them to learn how to provide and of course they might have a as they call it a side hustle but uh, just uh, make sure that it's something you own and it doesn't own you and so teach our sons and daughters especially our sons how to be providers and teach them to be a gatherer as this verse says to be a saver and not a spender to be diligent about gaining. Now, I know the word budget is uh, just like the word diet. It's a four-letter word. But uh, it is, uh, and that's for you home-educated people, but it is, a, it is not especially uh, uh, fun at first to have a budget, just like it's not especially fun to have a diet. But I will tell you, you just give it a little bit, and you'll really be glad you did. Now, there is one super simple course of action in retaining what you have. Folks, many of us have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even more. Go through our hands in a lifetime. And so uh, what plan should we follow? How do we do this? Well, there's a very simple plan. It's the 10-10-80 plan. And you can kind of break it up a little different, but here's what it is. Assuming your taxes are already paid, then here's the way it works. 10% to God, 10% into savings, that's just kind of a quote word because you can maybe say the word investments. And there's different things along that line, but it's a savings plan. 10% to God, 10% to savings, tied to God, tied to yourself, and then you live on 80%. Now, it's not actually living on 80% because it's a after taxes, after tithe, and after tithing to yourself money, it actually ends up being more like about 65 or 60%. So you're actually living on 65 or 70% of your income. Folks, if you do that all your life, 
tithe to God, assuming your taxes are paid, tithe to God, tithe to yourself, live on the 80%, I will tell you, you'll never have a money problem. And within that 80%, you follow a priority-based spending. That means uh, you, uh, your food and raiment, your, those kind of things, your housing and your food, your transportation, those are up at the top. Down at the bottom is things like vacations and stuff like that. Just prioritize your spending, and it'll be amazing what will happen. The wonderful man of God, Wesley, said this, Make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. That's the secret to your finances right there. All right, let's examine one more. And uh, I will tell you, this is absolutely vital. Number seven, teach them to organize their finances. Okay, we got them working. We've got them in a career-type job. We've got them in a reputable, God-glorifying type of career, somehow, someway. Then we teach them how to control their money, or it will control you. Money is a wonderful servant. It can be used for so many good things, to bless people, to bless the kingdom of God, to be used to, for your family's benefit. But while it's a wonderful servant, it is a terrible master. What do we do? Proverbs 3 and verse 9. Honor the Lord. Honor the Lord. That's how you do it. Honor the Lord. With what? With your stuff, your substance. Everything that's in your hand, just honor the Lord with it. And especially the first fruits of all your increase. When God gives you increase, then just always give God the first tenth. So, verse 10, the wonderful promise, your barns be filled with plenty. Nice to have a little in your barn. And your presses, those are the things you're using daily, burst forth with new wine. How do you honor God? Two important financial decisions that honor God. Number one, always tithe and give offerings. We give from the top, God said. First fruits, give him the first fruits. In Scripture, 32 different times in the Old Testament, in, in Scripture, 25 in the Old Testament, 7 in the New Testament, the word tithe is used. It means tenth. Tithe doesn't just mean whatever you want to give. It means start with 10% of your gross income or your gross profit that always goes back to the Lord. It's all His anyway, but God's using this as a test. If you're going to honor Him, that's why He says, Honor the Lord. Put him first. Irregardless of my needs. I would tithe if I could. You're not understanding. I'm not understanding when I say that. If I give when I can, that's never going to work. Irregardless of my needs and certainly my wants, the first 10% always is given to God through a local Bible-believing New Testament church. That is absolutely the single greatest key to financial success. Teach them, Jesus first, in my time, in my talent, in my treasure. Notice what it says, honor the Lord. If I give my tithe to PG&E, I'm honoring PG&E. If I give my tithe to the mortgage company, I'm honoring the bank. If I give my tithe to the loan company, to my student loan, then I'm honoring the government. But God says, honor God, not the furniture company, not the car company, honor the Lord. 
We honor God by giving tithes. And then the offerings is over and above that. And that's something that God wants us to do. Like Pastor Luke mentioned, we're going to have an offering towards the, uh, the uh, Bibles. We have an offering towards this building. Tithe and then give offerings. Now, number two, never use debt to finance your desires. Folks, never go into debt. Just don't do it. Absolutely never. Don't do it. Protect your own peace of mind. Protect your family's physical, emotional, health, welfare. You'd say, well, pastor, that really sounds good. But how is that possible? This is a complicated world, expensive world that we live in. Well, then, let me clarify it because I think it's strange to me. But uh, it seems like every time you teach on this that people say, oh, I never really knew that. And how many times in Scripture does God talk about don't borrow, don't be a servant to the lender, owe no man anything? I mean, no matter how much we see in Scripture, people just like, I don't know what it is. But uh, folks, now, when we say don't go into debt, we're not saying that there might be unforeseen medical emergencies. And every word there is chosen. Unforeseen medical emergency that might cause temporary debt. Now, I'm not talking about getting hair implants here, but I'm talking about temporary uh, medical debt. Also, we're not saying you can't commit yourself to wise obligations. Obligations, not all obligations are debts, but all debts are obligations. Let me explain. What the Bible calls debt is anything that presumes on the future or presumes on God. Now, there's a biblical term for that. It is called surety, somewhat different than what the world calls surety. The world calls surety taking responsibility of anyone's performance for something that they need to undertake, which it might be showing up in court or the payment of a debt. Here's what the Bible calls surety. Any guaranteeing of the future. Anytime you sign on a dotted line, I guarantee to pay this. How can you do that? How can you possibly guarantee? So you're actually lying. Every time you sign a contract that says, I guarantee I will do it, you are lying. Because none of us can guarantee the future. That's why God said, don't do that. That's surety. You, sh you must not guarantee the future unless, now listen, unless you have a guaranteed form of repayment. Do you have a guaranteed form of repayment? Well, then good. Then you can sign your obligation. Perfectly fine. But if you don't have a way to do it, don't sign it because then you are presuming on the future. Here's what it says in Proverbs 22, verse 26. Be not one of them that strike hands or, notice the word or, or those that guarantee debts, surety. Those that guarantee a debt, don't ever do that. Why? Because if you have nothing to pay, they will take away your bed from underneath you. If you can't pay, actually is the reference there. If you can't pay, then they will take away it will cause great harm to your life. Scripture and 6,000 years of human history prove, listen closely, 
There must be no personal liability beyond the financed or contracted asset. Debt is a disaster waiting to happen. All debt. Now, there is one caveat here that I think uh, you might be interested in. Many people wonder, well then, how can we ever buy a home? They're so expensive, and of course nowadays going up so much. Well, thank the Lord, I've been able to get some biblical clarification on this over the years. Some people say, well, what, what about that? Well, uh, if we need to, uh, we feel led of the Lord to get a, a mortgage and we don't have the, the money in hand to do that and we want to buy a particular home, certainly all the principles of, you know, making sure we can afford it and all that. But um, in the state of California, and here's what I want you to need, you need to know, in the state of California, all owner occupied single family dwellings. Now it's not this true in every state, but in California and many states, all owner occupied single family dwellings are non-recourse. You'd say, what does that mean? That means that if you have to walk away from that home, some medical emergency, you move, you can't sell, whatever the case is, then the other party, the bank or that person can only look to the financed asset or the collateral, not your bid, not all your savings, not all that. They have no other recourse but the collateral. The collateral is the home. That's the key. So therefore, it qualifies. You have a guaranteed form of repayment. The house guarantees the mortgage. That's it. They can't get anything else. And so because of that, it, it satisfies the biblical Prohibition on surety. It, should we go out and get a mortgage? Well, I think you ought to be prayerful about it. If you can, actually save, if you can save the money and buy one outright or buy a piece of land and slowly build on it or whatever the case, there's all kinds of uh, things we can pray about and maybe do. But I would say all of this, these two very practical things, may God help us to be practical, wonderful, godly uh, Families that shepherd and, and show our family what is God's perfect will to be mighty in spirit. All right. Now, let us go to our next uh, topic here. Who is God? Who is God? I believe that uh, this morning's topic is absolutely so crucial. I trust that you will take these seven very practical statements and that you will use them as we train and teach our sons and daughters. All right. Let's see if we can uh, get this done in about uh, 35 or 40 minutes here. Who is God? That's our goal. We are today going to talk about the fact that God is self-existent. That means that he owes his existence to nobody or to nothing. Now, the existence of God is actually quite a big topic, especially in academia. Now, before we get into God's existence, I think an equally popular but strange mental exercise is the question that maybe if you've gone to college or even high school, especially if you went to a state school, You've heard, probably heard this statement. How do you know that you actually exist? 
I've always kind of wondered about that. But uh, cogito, ergo, sum is the Latin phrase given to us by Rene Descartes so many years ago. It is the very famous, I think, therefore, I exist. Kind of a strange concept. How do I know I exist, let alone God? Well, Jean-Paul Sartre said it this way. Put it up if you would, please. If I can read that. You, you think you're confused? This guy is brilliant. I am, I am, I exist, I think. Therefore I am, I am because I think. Why do I think? I don't want to think anymore. I am because I think that I don't want to be. I think that I, because, uh, yes, right. That's the philosophical. Here's another one who said, I think I exist, therefore I exist, I think. <laughs> Does God exist? Well, every lady will identify with this one. You know you exist, you know you're real, because, because you shop, therefore I am. You exist because you shop, amen. A couple of wise guys, I appreciate these. If I think, therefore I am, how come so many people in Congress still exist then? <laughs> Very well said. And here's another one I must admit I had to throw in there. I think, therefore, I'm a conservative. <laughs> there we go. But finally, I will say, if it were possible, our undoubted existence. I think that's pretty undoubted, right? We exist today. But if it could be doubted, it is still much less a reality than God's self-existence. You'd say, well, why do we care if God's is existent? Why do we care that he's self-existent? Because it shuts down all foolish ramblings. Academy Award winner, actor, and director Morgan Freeman said it this way. I am God. So it's easy to play him. They say God is in all things, so if God is in me, then I am in God. Therefore, I am God. Listen to this statement. God does not exist without me. Now, folks, that is an absolute heresy, and it is crazy. Folks, God is an all-existent deity. He is the alpha and omega of truth. He is the only self-contained one. He does not need us for anything. Because of that, he maintains and continues sovereign, omnipotent control over everything, all the while offering incredible mercy. Now, if you're a wise person, you believe the Bible. You understand that God was not created. He had no source. He has no maker, and he has no origin. God exists from all eternity. I hope you're writing this down. To all eternity. That's why scripture opens with the powerful statement, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Now, it just seems strange that we have a book, a volume about God, and this volume doesn't write about his origin. And that's because, for one simple reason, there is no origin of God. God never defends his origin, he only declares his existence. None else, nobody, nothing ever caused him to exist. 
Now, folks, we need to get it down in our minds. Everything and everyone has an origin but God. He is the only uncaused cause. Now, let's go to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. We're going to give you a little background to this tremendous couple of verse, chapters, chapter 44 and chapter 45. A little background. Cyrus is a king that was mentioned in the Bible more than 30 different times. He is known as Cyrus the Great or Cyrus II. He reigned over Persia. I think they have a picture of him there. He is an important figure in Jewish history because he is the one who allowed Israel to return after 70 years of captivity. In one of the most amazing prophecies of the Bible, the Lord told Pastor Isaiah, he said, brother, I want you to prophesy this word. There's going to be a king come 150 years before he lived. They said there's going to be a king come and he is going to bring back God's people to Israel. Now, and even though in chapter 44, Cyrus, when he was born, never really acknowledged God. Chapter 44 said God had been leading him by the hand all the way. Now, besides his dealing with the Jews, Cyrus is known as a great advocate for human rights, brilliant military strategist, and he bridged the cultures between the East and the West. Because of his tremendous influence, Cyrus, by many in Israel, consider him to be really the founder of Judaism. And many people, you may know this, many people believe that President Trump was the Cyrus of old. In fact, unique Netanyahu, when he stepped down from being prime minister, he even compared President Trump to Cyrus. You may have seen silhouettes of Cyrus, that little picture there, and Trump next to each other. The idea is that even though may they might have never really acknowledged what God was doing, they were God's in God's hand, leading God's people through a very difficult time. Now, with Cyrus as the background, with Israel being brought back to uh, their homeland, Jerusalem being restored, the temple worship, all of that coming back, with that in mind that it was going to happen, then here's what Pastor Isaiah said. Even though all that's going to happen, it is God doing it all. God's going to use Cyrus but he's doing it all. Five facts to know about your self-existent God. Number one, God alone is God. Isaiah 45 verse five, I am the Lord, there is none else. Never has been, never will be. There is no God beside me, I am God. I didn't win the God contest and become God. I girdeth thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah clarifies up front and cello right up in the front to his fellow citizens. God in his sovereignty may use Cyrus, but God is God, not Cyrus. He is just part of an eternal plan. What then makes the difference? God is the creator. He is not a created one. No one made him, no one caused him. He alone exists in and of himself, a quality that no other person shares. Now small thinkers, they stumble over the fact of God's self-existence. They say things like, everything must have a cause, everything must have a beginning, and arrogantly and 
short-sightedly, they say, if there is a God, then it must have a cause. But scripture clearly refutes that, and logic does as well. It does not make sense for something to have created God. Why? Because then that something and not God would then be God. So how could God have a creator? No, he has to be self-existent. God is the only self-existing one. He alone existed eternally, and furthermore, the only one will continue to exist. God alone is God. The second thing that Pastor Isaiah declared 150 years before it even happened, he said, God alone is creator. Cyrus, by all of his power, will be great. And he'll definitely alter some things, but he will never create anything. Look what it says in Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus saith the Lord, that created the heavens. God himself did that. Nobody helped him. He formed the earth and made it. He established it. And he didn't create it in vain. He created it. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. God said that he is the Lord and alone is creator. Now apologists tell us this, there are only three possibilities for anything that exists today. It is either self-created, which is of course an absurd possibility, for something to create itself, it had to exist before it did. That doesn't make sense. Then the second possibility is that number one, it's self-created, number two, it's eternal. And then number three, it is created by something that's eternal. The last two then prove that there must be a creator. There has to be a self-existent creator. The Hubble Space Telescope was sent into space to gather more information and facts. Supposedly, it came back with all this data and some astrophysicists came up with this brilliant concept. The universe exploded into being 50 billion years ago. <laughs> really? Wow. So what was it before it exploded into reality? It was nothing. Really? It was nothing and it exploded into something? Folks, out of nothing, nothing comes is a great scientific principle. It's even common sense. A young man told his mother one day, he said, Mom, I am now an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. She quietly responded, well, if there's no God, then who made this amazing world? He replied, nobody made it, Mom, it just happened. A few days later, he came home from school, passed through the kitchen, a delicious sandwich was sitting on the counter. He asked, who made the sandwich? His mother said, nobody made it, it just happened, and it's not yours. <laughs> Yo, no, things happen. Wonderful things have a creator. Highly respected British mathematician, philosopher, often quoted Bertrand Russell. People who were academia and heady, they loved to talk about him. Notice what he said. He said, what science cannot discover, mankind cannot know. Oh, really? Hmm, interesting. Let's see how that holds up. Think of a color in your mind right now. Just picture that color right now in your mind. Now, will science 
help someone find that color in your mind? Nope. You can do experiments, you can do this, you can do that. It will never happen unless you reveal that color to that person. Folks, the Bible is God's revelation to mankind, a specific revelation. That's why Paul told Brother Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10, the grace of God was made manifest. God declared his will to us. You'd say, well, you can't prove God. There are certain things that science doesn't prove. Revelation gives us the information about. And so God alone is creator. God alone is God. And number three, God alone can save us from our sins. I mean, Cyrus will be a great guy. He'll do a lot for our nation, but he will never save souls. Isaiah 45, verse 21, tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have I not the Lord? And there is no God and else beside me. A just God and a savior. There is none else. No other savior. Great people, sure, but never a savior. Powerful people in history. But nobody has ever saved themselves. Be if they can't save themselves, how can they save others? Every year, the business magazine Forbes declares an annual list of the 10 most powerful people in the world. Slots are allocated based on the amount of human resources, financial resources, their influence on the world. As you might imagine, the list is pretty short. Putin declared a couple years ago the most powerful man in the world. In 2018, the last year that they put that out, it was uh, the General Secretary of China, Jinping. Very powerful men. Of course, uh, there are those like Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Strange, all these men, like these great financial, they can't even keep their marriage together. And they're supposedly supposed to be the power, most powerful people in the world? Uh, I don't think so. No, only a self-existent God can save us. Mankind, as powerful as they might be, are no saviors. And that's what Pastor Isaiah was saying. Look, Cyrus will be a great guy, but he will not be one who can save you. Only God can do that because he's self-existent. He never had to be saved. Number four, God alone has true words. God alone. Isaiah 45, verse 23, I have sworn by myself. Now, some people say, boy, I swear uh, on my mother's grave, or I swear in my own name, or they have all these things. They say, I swear. But God says, I swear by myself. The word gone out of my mouth is in righteousness. Every word I've ever said is true and shall not return. I've never had to take back one word. These leaders are always taking back something, and I know that we all say wrong things. That unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. They'll end up doing that. It is for this reason that God said, that's why I am the I am God. In Exodus chapter 3, God appeared to Moses. Moses had been called to go and speak to Pharaoh about letting God's people go and letting them go back to the promised land, get them out of slavery. Moses is there like, oh yeah, great. That really sounds like a wonderful uh, ministry. I don't think I want to do it, but 
Um, okay, I'll, but if I go and talk to Pharaoh, he's going to wonder where I have the authority to do this and who is telling me to do this. God said, well, just tell him I am, says it. What? Tell them I am. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Tell them I am who I am. Now, why would God use that term, that self-existent term? He said, tell them the self-existent God told you to do it. Well, who is that? He's never had a beginning, never has an end. He's a self-existence God. He is the ever-present God. I am. Think about it. Now, there's very few things that most of us can say, I am about. I might be able to say, I am Pauline's husband. That's one relationship. Uh, I might be able to say, for example, I am handsome. A few things I can say, you know. And, uh, and of course, also, I am very humble. And those two things, I can say that, you know, but uh, I am. But the truth is, oh, folks, maybe one or two things I can really say, I am. God can say that about everything. I am mercy. I am grace. I am strength. You need strength? I am strength. You need wisdom? I am wisdom. What do you need? That's what I am. I'm the ever-present, always existed God. I've always had strength for you. I've always had grace for you. That is my God. It is the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency and self-existence. His immediate presence. He stands ever-present, unchangeable, completely sufficient in and of himself to do anything we need to do. The Old Testament, Egypt's Pharaoh said, oh, no, you don't. I'm, you're not going to get away with that. I'm not going to humble to your God. I am my own God. And he decided he would go his own way. And God had a way of kind of getting his attention. One of Frank Sinatra's signature songs was, I did it my way. The final line of the song written by Paul Anka expresses, I think, a common refrain of mankind. Here's what it is. For what is man, what he, he's got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels, listen to this. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. Well, good luck on that, Frank Sinatra. You took the blows and you did it your way. Well, you could have given it to a self-existent God, a God who alone has true words. Number five, God alone is Lord. Isaiah 45 and verse 23, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. I am. Have you ever realized that in the New Testament, we amazingly have this incredible story of God becoming man in the flesh? Remember all the sermons of Jesus? He kept giving all these amazing sermons. Often, he said the word, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the light. Now, why would Jesus, God in the flesh, keep saying the words, 
I am. I am. In the Garden of Gethsemane, they asked him about who he was. And he said, I am he. And when he said that, they fell down exactly as Isaiah 45 said, because Jesus is the God, the self-existent God. He is deity. That's why in Psalm 90 and verse 2, it says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. It is a fundamental fact of Scripture. History proves it to be true. God has always been there. He always will. He is the ever-present I am God. That's why Paul said in Acts 17, Though he, our God, never needs anything, seeing he gives to life all breath and all things. God is absolute, and his truth is absolute. Now, people don't like that today. Isaiah 5 verse 20 really tells what's happened in our world. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Folks, we've come to that point where people have taken the good things from God and have turned them upside down and saying they're bad. Hillary Clinton called evil good when she characterized people, specifically evangelicals, any person that would deny a woman a right to choose, they are deplorable. Strange, isn't it? How that we're deplorable because we try to save a life. A few years ago, one of the rockers from Aerosmith, they asked him, is lust a sin? <laughs> lust a sin? He said, lust is what I live for. It's good. That's what I got into this band for. Man, is these little girls on the front row. Folks, everything today is fast becoming reversed. To many now, Christians are the immoral ones, strange enough. They are the haters in our world. But that's what happens when you cut off the biblical authority of a self-existence God. Because if he's self-existent, if his truth, if his words have always been there and always will be, but if you discount that, then you have to come up with a whole new set of moral values. This world is upside down. I found this this week and I just was intrigued by it. It's in your, uh, you can get it on the app. I think we have it here. It's kind of hard to read. You can squint your little eyes there. But uh, if you want to go on the, the notes, you can see it. It works out real good. I'll read it from the top down, and then you read it from the bottom up. The idea is how upside down it can be when you think a different way. Here's the atheist worldview. I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It is just foolish to think that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the pain and suffering in the world. It is a comforting thought, however, it only is wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I, deserving of hell because of sin, is a lie meant to make me a slave and power. The more you have, the happier you'll be. Our existence is no grand meeting or purpose in a world with no God. There is freedom to be who I want to be, but with God, everything is fine. It's ridiculous to think I am lost and in need of a Savior. That's the world's view. Here's a Christian worldview. I am lost. Start at the beginning, go up. 
I am lost in need of a Savior. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine. But with God, there is freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you'll be. It is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I am deserving of hell. The idea that consequences people can do as they please without eternal is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, the pain and suffering in this world, that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to it just foolish to think that God does not exist. I will live my life according to those beliefs. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how everything changes when we look at something? I tell you what, folks, we've come into a world where people are calling evil good. But when you look at it from an opposite standpoint, you realize that our self-existent God has all the morals we need. Three final reasons why the self-existence of God matters. Number one, God's self-existence makes him the sole determiner of truth. Truth is not public conscience. Truth is not a collection of morals. Collect the truth is not what we can study or science. Science, you know, is the new God for so many in a world too often rocked by relativism, confusion, and wokeism, I'm telling you, isn't it good to know that there's somebody we can trust completely? God's existence makes him the sole determiner of truth. The second ramification is that God's self-existent makes him the only one who doesn't fail. God never fails. He never has and he never will. Because he, as a self-existent God, he's kept all things going. He'll never cut and run when trouble comes. His self-existent character provides us with everything we need. And as Hebrews chapter 6 says, he is the anchor of our soul. And then finally, God's self-existence makes him the only one who will never, ever cease to exist. His sustaining providential control of all things is assured to each of us today, tomorrow, and a thousand tomorrows. Tonight, when I lay my head on the pillow, I have that wonderful, amazing assurance that everything, everything is all right. It's a crazy world, folks. And it's getting kookier all the time. But I am thrilled to be able to announce to each of you that everything is all right in my father's house. Would you bow your heads with me, please?